the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Good morning, listeners. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We eclipsed 100,000 listens in May of this year, and now we have over 125,000 listens for the two years since I started these recordings. That's just unbelievable to me that I've had that many people listen to my voice and recordings, and I want to say thank you to all those who do listen to us and support us. And for the next three weeks, we will be hosting a best of for 2022. These recordings were the top three listened to in 2022. In third place is Dr. Lisa Canada, and she's talking to us about trauma. In second place is Dr. Dietra Toon, chatting about interventions in physical medicine and rehabilitation. In first place, drumroll, is me discussing distal radius fractures and their management. I'm surprised that that's the case, but thank you for listening to me discuss this. Third place, I had the pleasure of hosting Dr. Lisa Canada. Dr. Canada and I discussed trauma, triaging trauma, and the management of the multiple trauma patient. She gave us some insights on her technique for IM nailing of the tibia shaft for tibia shaft fractures, which is really slick. I, I hope you enjoy that part. And we also talked about some surgical timeouts and how she wound up doing trauma. Back today with part two of our interview with Dr. Lisa Canada. You had talked about tibia shaft fractures and your approach, uh, different from the suprapatellar approach for nailing. I was wondering if you might share with our listeners a little bit about that, advantages, disadvantages, and why it came about. In the past, traditionally, the way to fix a tibia fracture had been over a triangle with an infrapatellar approach, most often by splitting the patella tendon. Uh, in the past several years, there's been a trend towards suprapatellar nailing, but more Im importantly is the positioning that's used. The positioning that's used for suprapatellar nailing is a semi-extended position. And a semi-extended position was thought to be advantageous specifically in proximal third femur fractures, because if you take a proximal third tibia fracture and bend it over the uh, triangle for an infrapatellar approach, oftentimes there would be flexion of the deformity and lead to problems in alignment when you were trying to fix that. So the semi-extended position was thought to be advantageous. The suprapatellar nail is inserted through a semi-extended position. But one of the earlier studies that came out about suprapatellar nailing is it was good for distal third fractures. The alignment of distal third tibia fractures was improved by doing a semi-extended position using the suprapatellar nail. There's some people, for example, that don't have the tubes necessary for suprapatellar nailing, but want to do a semi-extended position. And what I have done, you know, I started while I was waiting for more research to come out on suprapatellar nailings. I really like this semi-extended position. It's easy for any OR assistants to help in maintaining traction, and there isn't the deforming forces of flexing it over um, a triangle with proximal third fractures, but also the semi-extended position, another 
way instead of doing suprapatellar nailing. I do a lateral parapatellar approach and you can do this extra articular. There's more research coming out about this. You get the benefits of suprapatellar nailing by doing the nailing in a semi-extended position, but without possibly the increased knee pain, which some people feel could exist with suprapatellar nailing. Everyone has their own thoughts on this. And the literature is actually pretty good on suprapatellar nailing. Uh, there are some studies that show no difference in knee pain, but again, it's whatever the surgeon's comfortable with. And while waiting for the research to come out, I became very comfortable with the positioning using the semi-extended position, but using a lateral uh, approach. And I have to tell our listeners that don't have the benefit of seeing the video, uh, it, it's really slick. I mean, uh, it's a totally, it, it's like, uh, how, how did somebody not think of it before then? I mean, it's such a, a great idea. I don't see why anybody would want to use it. It's, it's like taking, I, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I love it's, it. you know, the, the bone tendon bone for ACLs and you got to take out part of the patella tendon. People have patella tendonitis if you're splitting the patella tendon going down in there and you have a different approach. Why, you know, why not use it? I think it's so easy for this starting point. It's a one shot deal. Anyone that's listening, if you have it, the advantage of looking at the uh, videos, it, it's really helpful. It, it really helps to visualize this. I do have one question. You had mentioned this, and this is uh, an unexperienced person with the type of trauma you're dealing with, but drilling a K-wire across the distal tib-fib when you're doing fracture stabilization of the tibia, how does that help? Is it just letting your assistant water ski to reduce it, or what does it make that better? I would insert a K-wire in the distal tibia parallel to the joint. And this is for distal tibia fractures so that I ensure that I'm getting my guide pin perpendicular to the joint so that I'm lining it up and won't have malalignment of a distal third tibial shaft fracture. So that's what that helps me. So in order to know you're straight down the center and your guide wire straight down the center, uh, drilling that when there is malalignment from the fracture will help ensure that you're getting uh, anatomic reduction. Got it. I, I know at 3 a.m. you had mentioned in one of your talks with the travelers that come in that don't know the equipment and you're trying to decide, am I going to take this person to the OR or not? And that's creating a whole lot of tension and it's 3 a.m., you know, sleep deprivation, et cetera. Psychological safety timeout seems very appropriate at that point. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think it's really important. Anytime where anything could be deteriorating, whether it's the patient, whether it's the relationships amongst the people in the room, or whether there's not clear understanding of the goal of the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, and the surgical team. It's very important that we're all on the same page when we're starting. And should something go south in the middle, that we go back to that starting point and have that psychological safety timeout where we just step back and make sure we're proceeding with the same mutual goal in mind. Well, Dr. Canada, this is wrapping up our discussion of trauma. Do you have any recommended resources for our listeners? A great resource, which I was one of the uh, editors of, is on the Orthopedic Trauma Association website. It's free for all. It's uh, ota.org and it's under education, and it's the core curriculum lecture series. It just came out this year. We have 105 lectures 
on multiple topics, every 10 different sections. Uh, so some of that does include the multi-trauma patient, femur fractures, tibia fractures, pelvic fractures, external fixation, you name it, it's covered. We also have pediatric and spine fractures on there. So I think it's a great resource because it's current. It was thoroughly edited and reviewed and vetted. The lecture series is for free. Awesome. Well, great. Thank you so much for that. You showed a picture of your dad in one of your presentations. And I'm guessing he was an influence in your medical career decision. And I'm just curious if he was, did he also do trauma and how you decided on trauma as a subspecialty? Well, that's a great question. My dad was an OBGYN, so obviously I did not follow in his footsteps. He would take me to his office, and I know he would have been thrilled if I would have been an OBGYN and taken over his practice. I mean, he delivered thousands and thousands of babies. He practiced until he was 90. He delivered babies and operated till he was 75 because that's the limits for malpractice when you're an OBGYN. And then he maintained his GYN practice in Steubenville, Ohio, and Weirton, West Virginia for 15 years after he retired at age 90 and unfortunately passed away. I think he was like Bear Bryant. As soon as he stopped doing what he loved, he died. He was a great influence on me and strongly encouraged me. He went to medical school at the University of Maryland. So I went to medical school at the University of Maryland, and that's where the R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center is. And that is what turned me on to trauma. I was an athletic trainer at high school, college, and professional level. And all the time when I was an athletic trainer, I'd work with orthopedic surgeons, and I was always busy because you worked about 40 hours a week in college as an athletic trainer with all the practices and traveling. And I tutored athletes to make money. So I was always busy. As soon as I got out and started working after I got my master's in athletic training, I was like, wow, this is boring now. I was always listening to orthopedic surgeons. So I decided I wanted to be one. I went back to medical school at the age of 29, which wasn't common then especially in the 1990s for women. And because I went to medical school at University of Maryland, where my dad went and saw shock trauma, as soon as I saw the trauma center, I was like, oh my God, not only am I gonna be an orthopedic surgeon, I'm gonna be an orthopedic trauma surgeon. Listeners, I wanted to inform you about our foundation that we created this year in Denver. We call it the PAOSF, PAOS Foundation. We voted to establish this in Denver and our board of directors are making significant strides and I wanted to provide you some updates, some things to look for in 2023. We plan to increase our scholarship program, the Susan Lindahl Scholarship Program. We're going to increase that in number and hopefully in 2024 we'll increase the number and amounts. We are working to license some DEI content basically two hours of uh, licensed video content exploring diversity, equity, and inclusion, and some of the topics that go along with that. We are going to get CME for that, Category 1, and we'll provide two hours of free Category 1 CME to PAOS members. So be on the lookout for that. That should be coming soon. We're also working toward developing some PA-directed research and have talked about doing some PA leadership work 
and that's to be determined, but, but we're working on it. Uh, we have a small board running a big foundation, but we got a lot of good stuff going. So I hope you can continue to donate to the scholarship program and support our initiatives. And I look forward to telling you more about it as time goes on.